Along with the many changes teens experience on the road to adulthood, shifting friendships are some of the most dramatic and painful. It's especially true for girls. While our daughters muddle through the social muck of middle and high school, trying to figure out who's a friend worth keeping and who is so not, they frequently attack each other in very personal ways. Thank technology in part for the ease with which today's girls effectively bash and degrade their fellow students. But technology didn't teach them that this stuff is okay. Where'd they learn that? Could it be they've picked up some life lessons from the snarky remarks they've heard us make about other women? My God, she got so fat. Whoa, she looks old. What happened to her? Is she wearing a mask? Wait a minute, you say. Maybe those remarks are less than charitable, but they are aimed at celebrities. Fair game. We certainly never trash talk anyone we actually know. Well, at least not to her face. But when our daughter has a problem with another girl, she is likely to go straight for the jugular. No parent wants to imagine that their sweet little girl would intentionally hurt anyone, no less a friend, but it happens. A lot. What also happens way too often is that girls who are targeted don't have the courage to speak up for themselves, which may explain why this friend-to-friend social aggression might be going on via text, IM, and Facebook in your home without your knowing it. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. Today's show, Queen Bees Go High Tech. My guest today is Rosalind Wiseman, author of the New York Times bestseller, Queen Bees and Wannabes, helping your daughter survive cliques, gossip, boyfriends, and other realities of adolescence. The book has just been re-released in a new edition covering the impact of technology on girl world. Twice a New York Times bestseller, Queen Bees and Wannabes was the basis for the 2004 movie Mean Girls. Rosalind's follow-up book, Queen Bee Moms and Kingpin Dads, was released in 2006. Rosalind Wiseman is an internationally recognized expert on children, teens, parenting, bullying, social justice, and ethical leadership. Welcome, Rosalind. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. This book is something that grabbed me seven years ago when I first read it, and I actually loved the movie Mean Girls and thought, wow, this is a window into a world that a lot of parents need to know about. And I wanted to ask you right away, because we've got this new realities of girl world updated edition here, if we could talk right at the start about technology and why you're so impassioned about tying ethical development into the use of technology. Well, I'm always looking for ways to be relevant to the boys and girls and the teenagers that I work with. And it just makes sense to me that we would use technology as the way to reach out to young people and say, you know what, there are ways to connect our ethical standards and our moral compasses with the ways in which we use technology. And just because 
you know, I might not know every single thing in technology like a 15-year-old person does, or I can't program my cell phone like the way my son or my daughter does, that I can be an adult, I can be a teacher that really, you know, shares with young people and holds them accountable for the things that they do online, just like I would do in real life. Why do you think that there is this disconnect for them, that their standards of behavior seem to shift so drastically for some of them, for many of them, when they've got a cell phone in their hand or when they're IMing? Well, first of all, I think it's very easy to talk about young people doing all these things. And a lot of what I do in my work is to, you know, say to adults too, you know, we need to look at what we are doing Hmm. as well as talk about kids. Because one of the things that I found out when I was doing the technology chapter and talking to kids was basically because parents would come up to me and say, you know, my child is texting 3000 times a month. What do I do about that? And there's a lot of answers I want to say, like just take the phone away or, you know, it's those easy, you know, things that you want to say, but actually don't really work in real life. And you need to be able to give your kids boundaries and to teach them how to use this. But there was so much in that question about my, you know, my kids are texting 3000 times a month. It's as almost as if the parent is saying, I don't even see my kid anymore because they always have their fingers on this thing and their head is down. Absolutely. And that's not even, that's not even talking about the content of the messages. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it's really, it was so, it was so overwhelming to me. It was so perplexing to me that people were asking me this question all the time. So I asked kids, why are you texting 3,000 times? Oh, great. Month? I've always wanted to know, why are they texting? <laughs> and what are you texting 3,000 times a month? And, you know, one of the things that really came back to me that I really wouldn't have thought of but made perfect sense once I started talking to teenagers about this is they said, okay, this is our primary way that we are communicating things to each other. Absolutely. We don't use email anymore. You know, so yes, we, of course, we use Facebook, but texting is the fastest way for us to get communication back and forth to each other. But that also means that my parents are texting me all the time. Hmm. From the time I wake up until the time I go to bed, my parents are texting me multiple times a day. And when I was actually having this conversation, it happened, just so happened that I had two um, senior high school people working with me for their senior internship, and they were helping me rewrite Queen Bees and collecting all the information. So we were sitting and talking about this at lunch, and the two kids turned their cell phones around. They took out their cell phones, they turned it around, <laughs> and they showed me what their parents had written to them that morning. And we so it was lunchtime. I'm guessing it's something really mundane. Honey, are your shoes tied? <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, absolutely. I mean, it was the, the most incredible one was, honey, going to the airport to pick up grandma. And the girl had written back, you know, the girl that was now sitting and having lunch with me, the girl had written back, mom, you're driving. Stop texting me. Mom doesn't listen, continues texting. (gasps) You know, twins are sleeping. Grandma's flight is delayed. Mom, stop texting me. You are driving. Oh, jeez, that's scary. It is scary. It's terrible role modeling. (laughs) It is terrible role modeling. And the other kid who who was interning with me said, you know what my mom does? My mom sends me pictures of people that she thinks are dressed ridiculously. And she takes pictures of them and she forwards them to me. And, you know, he turned around, he showed me a picture his mom had sent him a few days ago of this person that she thought that she was basically making fun of at a gas station. (sighs) So, you know, really, we have to look in the mirror about these things. And before we say like, oh my gosh, my kid is texting 3,000 times, you know, a month, and I have no idea what that could be about. So, you know, of course, I'm all about, and I think it's great that parents can communicate with their kids. That's great. It's just that parents tend to take things to real extremes. 
and not think about what they're doing that contributes to the problem. So it's just, you know, it's an overall sort of understanding as we approach these issues of technology that we are contributing to this. We are part of this. It's not just teenagers. I mean, the other part is, I say to parents all the time, is when you pick up your kid from carpool, please don't be on the cell phone. Mm. You know, if you want your kid to connect with you and you want your child to not be using those little handheld games all the time when you go to social events, don't be on the cell phone when your kid gets in the car. So it's that kind of stuff. It seems obvious and yet not. And it's funny that what you say, and I absolutely agree that the use of the cell phone, texting technology, all of that stuff is great for communication between parents and kids. But what you just described doesn't really feel like communication to me. It feels like a neediness to, oh, look at this woman and how funnily she's dressed here at the gas station. That's not communication. Well, it is, is acting like you're 12. I mean, you're doing exactly what you don't want the kids, you say you don't want the kids to do. Well, there's that part of it, yes, right. but it, isn't it also, I need to be in a, kind of a neediness that, that yeah. my, my kid is in high school and I need to reach out and touch them during the school day. Yes, absolutely. And that I'm as cool as I'm going to show him, mm. you know, it's also a peer to peer thing because, you know, I, I really cannot imagine my mother, I mean, <laughs> I cannot imagine my mother ever, even if she had the ability to take a picture of somebody and say, oh, look at how ridiculous that no. person is. The other part that's very, very utilitarian for parents to realize is, is if they are sending multiple texts, you know, an email, whatever it is, all day, then your kids start, they really don't pay attention to it. And it, within the 20 texts that you are sending to them per day, there is one or two that you actually are transferring information about. But they're not paying attention to that if it's all in this big ball of lots of inane comments. Sure, I could just see the kid rolling their eyes to my mom again. Exactly. And you mm-hmm. turn it off. Right, you turn it off. Well, you know, in the context of the mean girls and the really mean girls and what Queen Bees was initially about and still is, you make a statement that I want to ask you about in relation to technology. You say, teens will never stop using technology to go after each other and the adults in the community. I found that startling in a way and wanted to ask you about, it's a sweeping generalization, but more to the point, What do you think the motivation for this need to go after their peers is all about? Well, I am in several debates with teenagers about this right now. A couple of boys actually have contacted me through YouTube, and I'm going to be answering it on my YouTube channel and my Facebook page and all of that. The general pushback that I get from teenagers is people have always been mean to each other. Girls have always been mean to each other, and this is not anything different than what we've ever dealt with in the past. And I have two answers to that, um, which I hope answers your question. One is, you know, as a generalization that people have always been mean to each other or discriminating towards each other, cruel to each other, exclusive to each other from sort of subtle means to violence, to physical violence. And it's obviously never made it right. So just because it's something that happens, and I think this is something parents sometimes get tripped up about too, is that you just say, well, this is how it's always been. So you don't think to question it. And one of the things I say to young people all the time is the minute somebody says, well, this is just the way it's always been. This is just what we do. That is the minute Mm -hmm. they critically thinking people step forward and say, well, wait a minute, why? Because if it involves the degradation or humiliation of other people, especially for the entertainment of other people of others, of bystanders, or sort of the general population around it, then that is a problem. And that is a tradition that needs to be really challenged immediately. It's totally not cool. And when did it become cool? Well, I would agree with you. I mean, there've always been cliques of kids who, for sport, 
humiliated and degraded other kids. We all remember that from middle school and high school. I personally could never really understand the entertainment value of it when it's so personal. Sure, when it's on, on a political or on a celebrity stage, we all can get pretty snarky about people. But when they're the students who you make eye contact with every day, you know, what's going on here? Do you agree with what your debate partners are saying that, well, you know what, there's always been that, that tendency, now we just have bigger guns? Well, I think no, I don't agree with them. I think that if you are going to be somebody that has self-agency in the world and that you, in your own small way, that you believe that you have an obligation for yourself and others to treat yourself and others with dignity and that you have a moral compass, you know, sort of this is the way I want to live in the world and I want to have self-agency. I want to have some control over myself and the relationships that I have in my life and that those will have integrity and that I will be comfortable being able to say to people things you know, that I have the ability to speak out when I see something that's wrong. If you want that ability, then you have to be able to challenge the things that are normal, common, but are not right. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say also is that there's a big issue about sexting right now, which has really become a uh-huh. huge issue in my work and kids sending pictures of themselves where they're naked or sexually provocative or sort of semi-naked to each other. Uh-huh. And one of the things I think, I mean, I really was having an argument with this with a 23-year-old guy a couple of weeks ago, and he was really disagreeing with me about how this is just the way it's always been, and as you're saying, with bigger guns. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I'll give, this is a very concrete example for me about the difference. When kids, you know, when we were growing up, and even like, what, five years ago, if girls in sixth and seventh and eighth grade played truth or dare, they would go over to a sleepover and they would have, you know, truth or dare, which is a classic. It is a classic thing that you do when you're in middle school. And a lot of that is about sort of testing, you know, the dares are about testing sort of, you know, what you're thinking about with sexuality and you're coming into your sexuality, you know, all of those kinds of things that is developmentally appropriate. And if you do something that's in the dare category, that not many people are, would see it, and it really would have like a limited lifespan. Mm-hmm. But now this school year, truth or dare, with 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, especially 7th and 8th graders, is take a picture of I dare you to take a picture of yourself naked and send it to the boy that you like. And, of course, when that boy gets it, he's going to forward it to everybody he knows. Mm-hmm. So this very, like, classic you know, developmentally appropriate, somewhat it could be embarrassing, but limited embarrassment moment of truth or dare five years ago or three years ago has become a huge weapon to humiliate a girl forever in her mind. Mm -hmm. So, and that just comes from truth or dare when you're in seventh and eighth grade. So the scope of it, so therefore its impact and also its ability to sort of to degrade people's ability to go through sort of their sexual development um, in an appropriate, you know, uncomfortable, but comfortable ways it's lost when we have these kinds of things happen. And when I think about a truth or dare kind of situation as you're describing it, I have a couple of questions. One, is it the girls who are daring their girlfriends to do these things? Yes, it is. It's not working in the other direction. Well, it could, but it's certainly, it's girls. I mean, sleepovers, you've got a seventh or eighth grade sleepover, you know, usually a single sex situation. Okay. So then what seems to come in play, obviously the girl who is being dared has to be feeling some pressure to do this. Her, her, you know, homies are right there. And then we're talking about the ethics of it, that voice inside of you that's saying, eh, I'm not really comfortable with this, but here are all my friends egging me on. 
And now we get into something that I call peer approval addiction, Mm -hmm. which is rampant with middle school girls. Mm -hmm. And it takes incredible courage at that moment to say, hey, you know what? I'm not going there. Right. And how do we empower our girls in moments like that when we're not around to have that kind of courage? Sure. Well, there's two things, I think. One is that I mean, one of the things that I do with the, with the owning up curricula, the thing that I write and, I, and that I teach teachers on, is that we use exactly those situations. And then we have girls and boys go through a strategy. It's like a structure upon which they, that they put their words. And I call it the SEAL strategy. Right. I was going to ask you about that. Please tell us about it. Okay. So, I mean, this is my version of iMessages. And iMessages are absolutely great in their content. I think that for most kids in the culture today, that after fifth grade, the ways in which we were taught about iMessaging, like it really hurts my feelings when you tell me that you don't want to play with me or things like that, that they're such socially aggressive children. They're going to say like, I don't care. Like, okay, I hurt your feelings. That was the point. So shut Whatever. up. Right, exactly. <laughs> the second part is that socially intelligent and socially aggressive children are very attuned to counselor speak and like mm. um, self-help speak which if they hear it coming from another kid, it's going to be another way for them to ridicule them. They're going to mock you. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other part is, is that sometimes, especially with kids in positions of lower power, and they're telling a child with more power, more social power, what they're feeling, that the way they come across is that they're asking to be treated with dignity. They're not mm. saying, I need, this is something I deserve. Right. Right, I deserve to be treated with dignity. So SEAL for me is just my version of iMessaging. Yeah, and, le- and let's be clear, it's S-E-A-L, and each of the letters stands for something which you're going to explain to us. Right, which I'm <laughs> going to tell you, which is the S is you stop and you think, you know, when and where, now or later. You know, do I do it publicly? Do I do it privately? And this is when you confront somebody, you know, face-to-face. But this is about preparing to confront somebody face-to-face. So your kid has a problem mm-hmm. and uh, they're stressing about it and have not yet taken the step where they're actually talking to the perpetrator about what's going on. So this stop is really an internal reflection. Exactly. And But as a parent, what I want you to say to your child in that situation, if they come to you, is I want you to say, this is in preparation for of SEAL, is that you say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Thank you for coming and telling me because your kid is taking a risk to tell you because most of the time they think going to an adult will make it worse. Yeah. And often it does. <laughs> and sometimes it does. Right. And together we're going to work on this. Like we are going to think through, you know, how we can do this so you can feel like you've got some control over a situation where your control is being taken away from you. Excellent. You know, most of the time, and a lot of times kids will say, okay, mom, dad, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you what's happening, but you have to promise not to do anything or say anything <laughs> or anything like that. And that's an impossible. This is why parenting is so impossible because on the surface of it, that request makes perfect sense that you would not only does the request make sense but that capitulating to it agreeing to it makes sense which is yes of course I I won't do anything I won't say anything (laughs) but you actually can't make that request because if your kid tells you something that you have to do something about then you've not only you have to do something that they're not going to like right but you've also broken a a promise Mm -hmm. and you really would want to try and avoid that if at all possible so when they ask you to promise that Mm -hmm. you will not do anything if they agree to tell you what is bothering them what do you do you say you know what I really can't make that promise. I mean, I would love to be able to make that promise, but I can't because you might tell me something that we're going to have to go find somebody who knows more about this problem or figuring out a solution than I do. I mean, I said to my nine-year-old today when we were going into school, (laughs) I said to him something like, 
you know, I know you think I know everything, but you know, sometimes I actually don't. And of course he rolled his eyes. He's like, Oh God, mom, please. (laughs) (laughs) But you, I mean, really, honestly, this is an opportunity for parents to say, you know, I'm here to be, to say like, I love you. Right. But I'm not going to know all the answers to these things. So we're going to have to maybe find somebody who does. But I'm on your side. I'm on your side. Right. I'm on your side. So you say, look, I can't make that promise. I would love to, but I can't. But what I will promise you is that if we do need to bring somebody in, then you and I are going to sit down and think about who that person is or who that person needs to be. And you will never be surprised by their involvement. You are never going to walk into a room and all of a sudden, some counselor is going to be there. And you have not known that this was going to happen. That will not happen to you. You will not be surprised. That's great. Because, you know, notwithstanding, like, the intervention shows we see on television, people, you know, for alcoholics and stuff like that, nobody likes to be surprised like that. No. Most of the time, people, including the people on those shows and including a teenager or a tween or a kid who's having a bullying problem, they come to you with a problem. In that case, they don't want to be surprised by you taking over. And also... That robs them of the control that they need to have to be able to face the bully. Exactly. So it's so it's actually totally counterproductive to do it, but it just it makes sense at the time that when your kid says to you, "I need you to promise me," you feel like you have to promise, otherwise they won't talk to you. Right. But in my experience, when you tell kids and you act like a parent, you give them limited options. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is okay. I actually am going to maybe we have to talk to somebody, but you are going to be in the process they're going to be able to meet you halfway. It really works. It's a sign of respect, which is the exact opposite of what they were getting in the bullying situation. Exactly. So then once you've done that work, then you sit down with your kid and you say, okay, I'm going to give you a structure that's going to help you think through the really bad feelings in your stomach so that you, it's just a structure. It's not like perfect words. It's not anything like that. It's a way for you to think through how you can take the bad feelings in your stomach and put them to words for yourself before you go and talk to somebody else. Because how many times, and really I want parents to say this, have you ever had the experience of getting really, really mad at somebody, I don't care who it is, like really, really mad at somebody and thinking exactly what you want to say to the person and then you get in front of that person and you totally lose your words. It's gone. So this is going to be a way for you to have a better chance of that not happening. So we can be calm and you can think through it and you can have as much control as possible in the situation. Okay, are we on the S yet? Yeah, so that's all that prep work (laughs) for S. It's very hard, all this self-reflection and all this preparation. So the S is that you stop and you think when and where now or later, public or private, will I have the confrontation? And usually to do something short publicly and then longer privately. The E is you explain exactly what you don't like and exactly what you want. So you For example. You, well, you don't use words like you're being mean to me or you're being so annoying. You say things like, when you stole my password, you used my password because you know that I've had the same one since like sixth grade and you used it and went into my Hotmail account and um, sent a picture, an embarrassing picture or bad things to my entire email list looking like it was me, Hmm. that is absolutely, I hate it. It is beyond embarrassing to me. And I feel totally out of control of like what is happening and all the people that I send stuff to. So it's in the kids' words, but they say exactly what happened that they don't like and exactly what they want, which is I want you, A, to stop Also, they need to say that they changed their password in that situation, but that you need to say, even though the kid probably won't do it, I'm asking you to send an email to all of those people that says that you sent that message and it wasn't me. I'm going to be sending that message, but I'm asking that you have the courage and the integrity to do it yourself. So E stands for explain where you're coming from to the person who hurt you. Yeah, but I mean, exactly what happened and exactly what you want. And then the A is affirm 
and acknowledge or admit. Some kids like acknowledge, some kids like admit. So affirm is your right and the other person's right to walk down the school hallway or be in this world without being treated like dirt. That that's actually needs to be said. This is huge, Rosalind. Right. But isn't it so sad that you need to actually say that? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. And so sad. it's sad. It's heartbreaking. I get emails from kids from around the world and have been for the last 12 years. And the thing that riles me the most, that makes me apoplectic, is when some kid seems to need to beg for the right to just be in school. Right, exactly. It makes me crazy. Exactly. It makes you crazy too, huh? Yes, it does. And I certainly, I get them, yeah. And <laughs> I think sometimes the role of the adult is to pierce this bubble that all of this stuff is like normal now, right? The kids will say, well, it's just happening so much that it, I just didn't ever thought of it as being something that was wrong because you see it so much. And I really think that, you know, the best adults pierce that bubble and say, no, actually, it's not okay. Yeah. What you're going through is not okay. And you are completely in your right to be upset about it. Yeah. Just because something's normal doesn't mean it's appropriate or acceptable. And normal just means it happens a lot. Exactly. So the first A is the affirm. I have the right to be in this world without being treated like dirt, as do you. Or say to very specifically, I have the right to say what I don't like without you making fun of me, ridiculing me, saying I'm just joking, no offense, you're so uptight, don't be gay, right. you know, all of those things that totally silence people, mm -hmm. that I have the right to complain about something I don't like and that you don't ridicule me or threaten the end of the friendship, which is like, okay, well, if you're going to be so uptight, then I don't need to be friends with you. If you're going to be so ridiculous, then we don't need to be friends. And that may happen. That Yeah, all the time. So that's part of the affirm. The acknowledge or the admit is having space in the conversation or the structure with what, you know, when you're going through this with your child, the structure that they can ask themselves the question of what is it possible that I contributed in some way to the dynamic that I am now dealing with, mm -hmm. which is not to say that you're to be blamed for what's happening to you, but because especially with technology, these things are really going both ways a lot. I really want the child to think about what happened in this dynamic that I'm in this place right now. Mm -hmm. And if there needs to be space for kids not only to demand the, their rights, their own personal rights, but that they need to go through the process of what are my responsibilities to other people and have I respected those responsibilities? And to myself, which I think is really interesting, go back to the scenario that you painted for us about the slumber party, mm -hmm. the sleepover, where girl A was dared to send this provocative picture to a boy that she liked. She has to admit to herself in reflection after the fact, when things blew up in her face, that she said yes. She pushed send. Yes, she did. And she needs to do that. And it's very hard for parents to want to, um, and some adults, to want to have any conversation with the child about what was motivating them to capitulate. Uh -huh. And we have to do that if we want the child to have the ability to be able to stop it the next time it happens. For example, that girl also needs to think about why not only was she unable to hold her ground with the girl in the room, but that part of it also might be because she wants the attention from the boys and she wants attention from boys in a particular way. Yeah. And why is that? I mean, and some of that is because you're a girl growing up in this culture and the culture is saying, this is how you get attention from boys. Right. But with, this is an opportunity for the girls to really do a lot of self-reflection about, well, what's the cost of doing that? And, you know, what happens when I do that? I think it's really important also because it takes them out of a 100% victim role into, whoa, well, yeah, you know, I kind of, I push the ball down the road a little bit myself. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and honestly, you know, I, I just can't imagine, and I'm saying this as a parent, that 
maybe, maybe a couple generations ago, it was possible, or before technology was possible for you to go through middle school and high school without being a target, a perpetrator, or a bystander. But I just can't see it happening now, especially in the bystander role. If it's 70% of kids with cell phones and they're bringing their cell phones to school, the chance of a kid walking down the school hallway with a person who has a cell phone who then turns and shows them whatever it is, the latest thing that's happened, I just don't see it happening. I, I, I just, I don't see how you escape it. So you have to deal with it. Yeah, this. you have to. It's really interesting dilemma. To bring it to the fore is so powerful because these kids really aren't thinking about these ethical dilemmas as much as they should be. I use a phrase, don't add to the garbage. <laughs> right. And, and the kids get that. And they also get it in the context of, for example, if you're in a playground and it's just littered with crap and you've got a candy bar that you've just finished and, you know, yeah, maybe it's 20 steps over there to an overflowing garbage can, but it's all over the floor anyway. And really, who the hell is going to notice if you throw your Kit Kat bar wrapper on the floor? You're just adding to the garbage, but nobody will know you did it. And besides, everyone else is doing it too. Yep, so there's that wonderful rationalization and justification. But if the place you come to is pristine, yes. and, you know, you're going to think much more carefully about whether it's cool or not to throw this wrapper on the floor. And that's what I say. I say to the kids, whether there's garbage there or it is a wilderness preserve, it's never okay to add to the garbage. Right, right. And they get that. Yeah, I would. It's a very good visual. I might use that myself. Go ahead. You can use it. I actually, I rip up papers and throw them on uh, auditorium floors to to demonstrate it. That's good. I like it. I like it. We're up to the L, right? Yes, we're up to the L. And so the L is you lock in the relationship, you lock in the friendship, or you lock it out, or you take a vacation. What do you mean by lock it in or lock it out? I think that the S, the E, and the A are good for when you just need to say your piece to somebody. And you don't necessarily, you can do this as a parent where you're affirming your relationship with your child. And if you're a teacher, it's not like you can lock out your students. If you're a parent, you can't lock out your kids. (laughs) So you wish sometimes you could. (laughs) Right, you do. Right, I know, right? But when it's with peers, or and this could be like work situations or friend situations, that you need to be able to go through the process of saying, do I want to be in this relationship or not? And how? How do I want to be? And so the lock in the relationship where you say, you know, look, I'm coming to you, for example, as a bystander, um, it's really important as the bystander to say to the perpetrator, I am coming to you, this is the lock in, I'm coming to you as a friend. It would have been much, much easier for me to have said nothing to Mm -hmm. you about this. But I'm saying this to you out of loyalty to you. And that's a lock in. And the lock out is, you know what, I have come to you about this. I've talked to you about this. It's not changing. You're dragging me down with you. Mm. You blow me off all the time. You ridicule me. I can't say what I want. You're bossing me around. You won't let me know have friends that I want, whatever it is. And you say, look, I've talked to you about this, and it's not getting better. So I need to lock out the friendship. Like, I need to do that. Or you take a vacation. Like, I need to take a break from you. But remember, in the very beginning, as I described this, this is a structure upon which you put your own words. So when I'm talking to kids about this, you know, they're like, I'm not going to say I'm locking you out. I'm like, of course you're not. (laughs) This is the concept that you have in your head. You put things to your own words. Like, hey, right now, dude, like, can't do this right now. Get back to you later. Right? Like one um, senior boy said to me a couple weeks ago, he's like, you know what I like better? I like ease in and ease out. 
of the relationship. Okay. I'm like, that's great. I don't care. Just make it your own. But the important thing is, is that you have a structure upon which you can strategize your way through this process because it's very, very difficult to do this. So that is seal. I've got to guess that the L part mm-hmm. may be the most challenging of all and um, what the kids probably need to prep for when they're doing the S part is when I get to L, if that's where I'm going, what might I anticipate as a response from my friend when I say this? Oh, absolutely. Part of the scripts I do with CL with kids all the time immediately includes the most likely, most realistic responses from the person that you're talking Mm -hmm. to. So when I'm doing scripts, I always ask the kid, I say, okay, what is the pushback you're going to get? What exactly are the words? Mm -hmm. So when I do my presentations or my classes, the scripts that we do have the ideal CL words in them, but then we have like most realistic pushback from the person. I mean, without it, it wouldn't be realistic. And the other part is, is that, I mean, there's two things that you have to say to kids when you do this. And one is, is that you're not doing this to be best friends with somebody or to destroy the other person. That's not what this is. It's not a zero sum game. It is you are going through this process so that you have a way of strategizing through a difficult, difficult situation where you don't feel comfortable saying what you feel. And so it's not about being best friends. It's not about vanquishing the enemy. It's a totally changing the criteria for success in a confrontation. And so whatever happens as a result, because of course the bully is not going to say like, oh my gosh, you're so right. I'll never do it again. Of course. (laughs) Like the best you're going to get is like eye rolling and blowing you off. And the worst is turning the school against you. Definitely. Sure. And that's why I work with with teachers, right? Because what I do with teachers, I mean, one of the most important things I say to teachers is, is if you're going to talk to a perpetrator about what they're doing and they're socially aggressive, actually. I tell teachers to use SEAL when they are working with the student. But one of the things that it's like the most important thing that a teacher needs to say to a kid who is the perpetrator is right before they leave, they say something like, you know, I think you and I have had a good discussion. I think that you, we are on the same page. Um, You've given me your word. I think that you're a woman or man of honor. So I'm taking you on your word, but I really need to be clear with you about one thing, which is that if you walk out of this room after this meeting and as a result of this meeting, the life of the target in any way becomes more difficult, Mm. then you and I are in a whole different kind of a situation. Because that, I mean, that's a key, key, key thing we have to say, because if we don't, then the kid can go outside and they don't necessarily have to do it, right? They can get their friend to go and what you're saying, get the whole school to gang up against the child. So you've got to really, that's a nuanced thing that you have to say. If the life of the target gets difficult for any reason as a result of this conversation, you and I are on a whole different level of a problem. That is so powerful, Ros, and I'm really glad that you help educators with that piece of it because I think it's often missing. Oh, yeah, because, you know, people have policies. I mean, I, you know, I deal with a lot of school systems. Some handle things well, some handle things so badly that you can't believe it. You're like, I mean, you just cannot believe or, you know, I'm sure you could, but it's like, you just can't <laughs> believe it. It's just like, I really, did you really think that that was an effective way to deal with X situation? I mean, I just think that a lot of people have policies for bullying, and that's easy. But the in the actual implementation of policies in the messiness of these situations is it's incredibly difficult. And so you need, you know, somebody who just, you know, obsesses on <laughs> the strategies mm-hmm. of what you say. Because the other part is if you get a really socially aggressive kid – one of the things I say to teachers is after you say that thing about you walk out the room is if you still think you've got a kid who's like, yeah, right, whatever, I'm going to go do whatever I want, mm-hmm. is you can say, you know, there's a chance 
that you might do that. You might make the life of the target more miserable and I will never find out. There is a chance I admit that. But there is a chance I'm going to find out. And I will tell you that I'm very focused on making sure that that's not happening. So if I do find out, you need to be really clear that you're taking a very big chance. Mm. And then let them walk out of the door. Like literally, and then say like, you are excused. I mean, if you're really dealing with a difficult child, and I have definitely run into a few, not many, but they're definitely, you know, you need it in your back pocket. As if you're really dealing with a kid who thinks that they can get away with whatever they want, and especially because, and they think they're in the right also. That kid usually feels like, they're in the right. Mm -hmm. And is also accompanied by a parent who feels that way. You need that in your back pocket. Okay, so this is a great segue to Queen Bee Moms and Kingpin Dads, because I can certainly imagine the school administrator doing exactly the right thing and getting Mm -hmm. all this incredible pushback from parents. Mm -hmm. What happens? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. (laughs) So how do you advise the school, which I'm guessing is, in fact, your consulting client, Mm -hmm. to either prep for this pushback that they're likely to get or to make make it a cohesive policy within the community so that it doesn't keep happening again and again. And here we are, and I'm rolling my eyes. Have we had this conversation before or have we not? Right, right. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that you need to do with that. I mean, first of all, this speaks to a culture of a school of dignity, right? I mean, this is like if you have an assembly for kids on bullying mm-hmm. and that's what you do, here's a 45-minute assembly on cyberbullying or whatever, the kids are going to blow you off and it's a complete waste of time. Really, I mean, it's such a huge waste of time. Like, don't do it. If you have a faculty meeting um, and then a parent meeting and you tell the kids that this is what you're doing, that it's not just a bullying assembly, but that we understand that this is about the whole culture of the school and the adults as a part of the culture have to participate in this as well. That if you recognize that, the kids start to have a slight chance of believing that you're not completely full of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's a couple things I do when I talk to parents. I say to parents, you know, even the sanest among us, really, the sanest among us, have moments where we completely lose our minds when it comes to our children. Of course. And honestly, the anxiety and the fear and the anger that happened that in the sort of the mix of all of it, when something bad happens to your child, that honestly, the role of the parent is not that you can't fix the problem. You can't even think your way through the problem because your emotions are hijacking your higher thinking abilities. It's a stress response. Your kid's survival is tied into your survival. Right. And so your job is to give your child a hug, is to take a deep breath regardless of their perpetrator, whatever it is, take a deep breath, tell your child you love them, and then listen to the adults that are in your child's life. Because one of the things we need to really think as an adult, as a parent, is parents often think, well, I know my child, and my child will never do X. And the reason is that, one of the reasons why, is because kids, in large part, act very differently at home than they do at school because they need different strategies and skills at school. So one of the things I can say to parents that they get is that imagine your child, you know, I mean, just think of your child, no matter how old they are, going to bed at night and they're talking to you right before they're going to bed at night. You're like sitting on their bed and you're talking. That child that you're talking to would, I would bet any amount of money, would never show that kind of vulnerability. And that person that you're talking to, that person has never been seen in school because that, because that person does not exist in school. That exists with you. Mm-hmm. So your child, if you have a functioning home, is able to let down their guard with you in a way they never, ever can in school. 
So when educators come to you with information that seems different than what you know about your child, it's not bad or it's not good. It's just different because what your child is is different. And I think sometimes parents have a really hard time. They just can't see it. They can't see the, you know, the forest or the trees. Yeah. So, and the other part is, is that if people are going to come up and talk to you, for the most part, people are so anxious about talking to parents that they do a very bad job of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's really, it's really true. It's really, you know, it's like teachers dread these conversations. It's really hard. So, because you only have to have one bad, scary, horrible experience with a parent where they yell at you, scream at you, curse you out, question your, your integrity, say things like, how dare you, like, really get in your face. You only have to have one of those for you basically to have post-traumatic stress disorder and <laughs> think that every parent who walks in your office and says, can I talk to you for a second, has the worst of intentions. And that's not fair. That's not fair to the parents. And I say that to the teachers, uh, you know, is that that's not fair. It's understandable that you feel this way, but it's not fair. And it also creates a problem. There's a lot of reasons why we have adults acting in ways that do not help the situation, that actually exacerbate the problem. So we have to look at it from all, from a whole culture perspective and answer to your question. And then for parents, the other part, um, oh, wait, what was the second part of your question? I forgot. Lord what it was. knows. <laughs> <laughs> I just was wondering how you counsel the administrator because they're going to get pushback from the parents. Right. I always tell the kids when I'm, and I, I always tell administrators and teachers that when they have these conversations with the kids, that they say at the very end of the conversation, and I really hope and expect that you will be talking to your parents about this because I'm going to be calling your parents within you know 24 hours because you know that the kid's going to go and talk to their but many children if they feel <clears throat> they're going to get in trouble, mm-hmm. like really are in trouble, they're going to go tell their parents and they're going to spin. And so it's really important for you to have said to the child so that when you have this conversation with the parent later and they're mad at you, that you can say, you know, I I really want you to know, I wanted to include you from the very beginning. And so that is why I told your child that it was very important that, and I expected them to speak to you immediately after I talked to your child. Mm -hmm. And now I'm following up with you so we can, you know, work together to have this be a learning opportunity, a teachable moment for your child. And hopefully a slight shift in a positive direction for the culture of the school which is where where we're all going. We all have to live and work in this place. (laughs) Absolutely. And with parents, the other thing I say to them is, and I mean, this is true for anybody, but for parents, when your kid comes home and tells you something that has happened, then, I mean, this is something I really want parents to get. Let me back up a second. Okay. This is really important for parents to get. I get lots, like you do, I get lots and lots of correspondence from parents and teachers and kids and all different kinds of stuff. The longest by far, emails that I get, written correspondence that I get from any demographic are mothers. Yes. And more than like sixth and seventh and eighth grade girls. Mm -hmm. And they are detailing for me in single space pages that go on for pages of what happened to their daughter and who said what, as if the parent was actually there while it was happening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, if they're there, that's a whole different problem, which is even worse, right? Like you're like stalking your child on the playground. Like, what are you doing? This was not helpful. Thanks very much, mom and dad. I love you so much. Now, please leave me alone. (laughs) Right. Okay, so so mom is is hyper-parenting here. 
Well, hyperparenting, but specifically thinking that what their child has related to them is the 100% truth, like, and that there is no other perspective. Now, the truth is their child, that is their child's truth, and nobody can take away that child's truth. It is also true that in human nature, when something has happened and you are in conflict with someone and you're angry at someone, that you focus on the things they've done to you and you do not focus on the things that you might have done in the process. You just don't do that. That's not what people do. So it's very natural for a kid to say, oh my gosh, all these terrible, terrible things happened. And so I say to parents, okay, if you have more than one child in your house and and those siblings, your sons or daughters are in a fight and they come to you because they're angry, because they're angry at each other, do they usually have a difference of opinion about what happened? (laughs) And parents laugh and go, oh, it's so funny. I'm like, exactly. It's exactly the same with your child and the other child. They have a very different opinion about what happened. So nobody can take away your kid's truth, but you also have to keep in mind that there is other truths that are maybe equally valid. You're not getting the whole picture. And if you go in there, guns blazing, you're going to maybe find out that there's a whole other thing going on there. And then you're going to get embarrassed and defensive because your kid now has made you look like a fool. Mm -hmm. So it's like incumbent upon you to really be able for all different kinds of reasons to be able to know that. So when you go to the school or when you go to a parent, that you you seal, you say exactly what happened that you didn't like, what has been reported to you, and then you say something extraordinarily important, which is that you finish your E or explain by saying, is that accurate? Mm-hmm. And then listen. Listening is hard. You have to breathe while you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> you do. You do, especially because parents get so mad. Then get defensive, and the mama lion comes out, and you're not. <laughs> mama lions don't listen very well. <laughs> they don't. And you know what? You know this whole like, if you mess with my kid, you mess with me thing. I get it, but at the same time, if your kid is like, if their life is at stake, okay, I get it. Like you can, you can like, you know, just go for it and do whatever you need to do to make sure your kid's safe. But we're not talking for the most part about kids where their lives are at stake. We're talking about things where you need to sit yourself down and say, is somebody going to die in the next five seconds? And if somebody's not going to die in the next five seconds, then you think through, okay, how am I going to go through this process with my child where I'm teaching them how I handle conflict when, you know, and living my life with dignity when it's hard, not when it's easy, because it doesn't matter to live your life with dignity when you get along with people. It's exactly the role modeling that counts is when you're mad. And the last thing that you want to do is treat the person with dignity. And that's when you have to do it. That's what means a huge amount to children. Okay, so now we're essentially talking about parents as as leaders for their kids. And I think this would be a really good time, if you wouldn't mind, to read your laying down the law policy to giving your daughter or son, I'm sure, the use of any technology. And this is coming from a parent who is very thankful that my own two children did not grow up during this era. And because I see there are a whole other conundrums that can come into play here. But as I always tell parents, whether you know how to program your cell phone's ringtone or not, this is not a technology issue. Ultimately, it's a parenting issue. Absolutely. So if you could just please read us the laying down the law. <laughs> sure. Technology can be really fun to use, and it gives us incredible access to the world. But it is a privilege, not a right. And because it is a privilege, you have a responsibility to use it ethically. What using technology ethically looks like to me is that you never use it to humiliate, embarrass, send personal information, misrepresent yourself or someone else, use passwords without the person's permission, share embarrassing information or pictures of other people, 
put someone down, that would be in elementary school, or compromise yourself by sending pictures of you naked, half naked, in your bra, that's junior high and high school. Remember that it is so easy for things to get out of control. You know it, I know it. So I reserve the right to check your online life from texting to your Facebook page. And if I see that you are violating the terms of our agreement, I will take all of your technology away until you can earn my trust back. This is my unbreakable, unshakable law. No confusion there, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure kids will figure out a way to make it confusing. (laughs) But yes, that's what I've talked to my own children about. And they are six and eight. Mm-hmm. And they get it. I hope so. Goodness, you know, they keep me, to say the least, extraordinarily humble on all of these issues. Already I've gotten phone calls about being mean or my child was bullied pretty badly. My older child was bullied pretty badly last year. So we're already in the mix of it and have been in the mix of it since my kids entered school. Wow. And so it is, it's happening younger and younger. Where do you see this going, Roslyn? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> It's so extraordinary. I mean, literally, it's extraordinary. You know, 18 months ago, I would never have said to a school that their firewalls were irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And now they are. There's no purpose in any school having any blocks or firewalls because most of the children are coming into the school with cell phones with internet access. It's it's just mind-boggling that that happened. And I remember the moment it happened. It was two school years ago. And it was September, and I had just gotten my iPhone. Mm -hmm. And I walked into a big auditorium of a very large public high school that has cinder blocks. And I'd never before gotten reception in that room, (laughs) in those kinds of rooms. And I remember needing something. And I just whipped out my phone, and I started looking through it. And I realized a few moments into it that I was getting a reception. And about a second after that, I realized, oh, my gosh firewalls are gone. <laughs> it was such an extraordinary moment. So where are we going to be? I mean, I, I know that by the end of May, that this sexing thing that we're going to be dealing with, well, we already are dealing with video chats mm-hmm. and that kids are going from pictures to videos. And that's of great concern to me. It's a tough one. I don't know where we're going to go, but the only thing that gets me to bed at night is that, you know, if we really tie this back to the root issues of how we must be with each other, that kids are smart enough to be able to extrapolate if we teach them the connections that they will be able to figure it out if we teach them that the way in which they use technology is just reflective of everything else that we expect of them. Yeah. And, you know, the way I put it to kids is if you were to ask them would you like more of this kind of social garbage in your school or less? They Invariably, of course, they would say, we want less of it. I said, well, it starts with you. Mm-hmm, absolutely. That's where it is. It's the choices you make in the moment, moment to moment. Absolutely. And when they're walking down the school hallway or when they're at the sleepovers, who has more control over this? It's certainly not the adults. It's them. Right. And you can't change your friends. You can't change your friend's behavior, though. You may have to change your friends. Right. You can swap them out sometimes and it gets really bad. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I think this is probably the message for parents is that you got to walk the walk when it comes to ethical behavior in your own life and make it crystal clear what your expectations are for your kids, whether they're online or not. Yeah. And I think the thing that I would ask parents about that is because, you know, you listen to like, you know, podcasts like this or you you read things and you think, well, yes, of course, like it's very important to me to be 
ethical role models for my children. But that's just the beginning of the conversation that a parent has with his or her, with him or herself. The thing that parents have said and kids have said to me a lot about what they like about queen bees is the check your baggage section mm. where I'm asking parents to look at their own behavior and how that contributes for better and for worse contributes to what's going on with their kids. I thought about that when I first wrote queen bees a long time ago, that it just made sense to me that you'd want parents to have an opportunity to self-reflect. But as I've watched people interact with this book and with the writing that I do, that part of it seems to be the most difficult but meaningful for people. And certainly, and I just I just got a stack, literally a stack, it's right in front of me, of 30 letters from kids in Los Alamitos, California and at the high school there. Mm-hmm. And they had to do Queen Bees and Wannabes as a, and review it and then write me letters about ah, it. great. And so, yeah, so out of <laughs> yesterday, out of the blue, I got these, you know, big stack of letters. And so many of them are talking about that part with the parents and how much they want their parents to be the loving, hard-ass parent that I talk about, Mm -hmm. or if they have them, that they really respect it and that they're so happy that they have that parent. It is extraordinary to listen to kids talk about what they want from their parents, which is really what a parent would hope any child would want from them. Yeah. So that gives me a lot of hope that we can get a handle on these things. I'm glad you're able to sleep at night because you've got a lot of work to do. So you need you need your energy. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> I do. I do need a lot of sleep. You're right. <laughs> okay. Before we close, Ross, I'd love for you to give our listeners an online source where they can get more information about you, the books, the work that you do, etc. Thank you. Well, rosalindwiseman.com, R-O-S-A-L-I-N-D, Wiseman, W-I-S-E-M-A-N.com. It's all one word. Is not only where you can get information about the books, I mean, you can get books at bookstores and wherever I, you know you go, but really the website, I, I actually redid the website about four months ago so that it would be a resource for parents in all different kinds of ways. Every week of all the questions I get, I take about five from kids and parents and it's called Rosalind's Inbox. And I say the question and then I answer it in less than three minutes. There's more than a hundred of them right now. And so you can use that as a starting place for discussion. But a lot of that, what I'm trying to do is lesson plans on the website for parents and for teachers so that I can be a resource in ongoing ways for adults so that they can hopefully have concrete ways to reach out to their kids. I've seen those videos. They're awesome. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I work very, I'm telling you, three minutes is hard. It is so hard. (laughs) I know they're succinct and they're action plans, and I really appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate your coming on to spend some time with us this morning. My guest today has been Rosalind Wiseman. She's the author of the revised and updated edition of Queen Bees and Wannabes, Helping Your Daughter Survive Clicks, Gossip, Boyfriends, and the New Realities of Girl World. Thank you so much, Rosalind, for the work you do and for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Good luck on the work as we move on together, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Take care. Thanks. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential. To learn more about my work with tweens, teens, and parents, visit AnnieFox.com. And tune in next time when my guest Diane E. Levine will talk about her new book, So Sexy So Soon, The New Sexualized Childhood and What Parents Can Do to Protect Their Kids. Till then, happy parenting. Thank you.